0: On a scale of 1 to 10, you would probably think that you're a 7. That's because irrespective of what it is that's actually being uh, measured, we all like to think of ourselves as a 7. We all like to think of ourselves as just a little bit above average. It's what psychologists call illusory superiority. The tendency in all of us to overestimate our positive qualities and underestimate our negative qualities compared to other people. And so 93% of us think that we are better than average drivers. Now, I'm not all that good at maths, but I think I can see that 93% of us can't all be above average. 83% of us believe that we are above average workers. 85% of us think we're better than average at getting on with other people. 74% of us believe that we have above-average common sense. Illusory superiority. Here's another place it comes out. We constantly overestimate how morally good we are compared to other people. For example, I have a friend whose neighbour went to jail for murdering his wife. Not my friend's wife. The neighbour killed his own wife, which was a big shock to everyone who knew him. And so my friend went to visit his old neighbour in jail and asked him how he was going, thinking that the guy must be feeling pretty bad about what he'd done, to which he replied, well, yeah, but at least I'm not as bad as the other guys in here. There's child molesters and drug dealers in here. And anyway, my wife had been, she'd been riding me for a long time. I was at the end of my tether. And and here's a bloke in jail for killing someone, which I'd be thinking is pretty high up the scale of things you could do wrong. And yet he's thinking that he's not that bad compared to everyone else. There were mitigating circumstances. There are other people worse than it all testifies to the amazing capacity within us all to overestimate our own goodness compared to other people. And so last week we looked at the second half of Romans chapter 1 in which Paul gave us a very dark picture of sin in the world of people of God giving people over to sinful desires and sexual impurity degrading their bodies by exchanging natural relationships for unnatural relationships being filled with every kind of evil, greed, envy, deceit, gossip, slander, baseful. Remember all that last week? Whereas well, we looked at that last week, what, was there a part of you thinking that that was describing the world out there but not you personally? Was there actually a part of you thinking, boy, I wish so-and-so could hear this? boy, I wish I could send a copy of this talk to to so-and-so as if they need to hear it more than you. Do you watch news reports about the gay Mardi Gras and think how immoral those people are? Do you read articles in The Liberal about trouble in the Apollo estate and think how bad they are? I've got two words for you. Illusory superiority. The Apostle Paul, he's actually got more than two words for us. Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, do you see who Paul is turning his attention to in this morning's reading? He is addressing those who pass judgment on someone else. In other words, after all that bleak picture of sin last week at the end of chapter 1, Paul is now deliberately targeting the moralistic person who thinks that last week's description didn't include them. He's fairly focusing on the respectable do-gooder who tut-tuts and thinks how awful all those other people are. And to those who like to judge others like that, Paul's got some home truths about how God will judge them. Truths about God's sense of judgment, which he then actually goes on and applies specifically to Israel. Why he picks on Israel, we'll, get to, uh, we'll think about when we get to it. But it's actually all leading to a very big conclusion that involves not just Israel, but every single one of us. It all kicks off with four key things that he wants those who judge others to realise about the judgement of God. The first being that God's judgement is based on truth. Verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgement on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgement do the same things. Now we know that God's judgement against those who do such things is based on truth. See, to those who want to pass judgement on others, Paul wants us to know that unlike us, when God passes judgment on someone, it's based on truth. When God passes judgment, it's based on reality. When God passes judgment, it's it's based on what is actually the case rather than what we think is the case. See, that's the trouble with our law courts, isn't it? Uh, As hard as they might try, sometimes our law courts just get it wrong. For example, last month in the US, a bloke named Lewis Taylor uh, was released from jail. Lewis had been serving twenty-eight life sentences for starting a fire that claimed twenty-nine lives. But new advances in forensics proved that he was innocent, which he'd already, which he'd always said that he was. And so the guy was released, which is lovely that he's now free. Except he'd already been in jail for forty-two years. Can you imagine that? 42 years for something you'd never done. That is not going to happen with God. His judgment is based on truth. Nothing is overlooked. Nothing is unseen. Nothing gets by him. Which is bad news for the moralistic do-gooder who passes judgment on other people. Because God just happens to know everything about us. He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows your thought world. He knows the desires. He knows the fantasies you've had. He knows the anger and uncharitable thoughts you've had towards other people. He knows the times we've gossiped under the excuse of sharing. He knows the falsehood that we've promoted when we've just stretched that truth or left certain things out of a conversation. He knows the times we've broken the law and just haven't been caught for it. Knows it all. For his judgment is based on truth. And it's also inescapable. Verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now you might remember that last week, uh, Paul described God's wrath already being revealed in the world as God gave this, gives this world over to its sinfulness to just spiral further and further into strife. Here, though, in verse 5, Paul now refers to a future day of wrath, the day of judgment when God will wrap this world up and everyone will have to give an account of their lives. In verse 4, he speaks of people showing contempt for that future day by not repenting before it comes, that's because the whole reason that the, whole, that the final day of wrath hasn't come yet is because God in his kindness is giving us a chance to turn back to him. But just because it hasn't come yet, that doesn't mean it's not going to come. And that's important because it means that God's judgment, although you may not feel its full consequences now, one day we will. Because is it not the case that if you get away with something it almost doesn't feel as if you've done anything wrong. What do we say? It's only illegal if you get caught. And so we look down in a disapproval at all those people who get caught speeding, driving over the limit. We mutter about all those terrible pea platers and we conveniently forget all the times we've gone over the speed limit and all the times we've hopped in the car after a few drinks. And all the times we've slowed down before the speed camera, got through the camera and then sped up again, but because we don't get caught, we almost don't feel as if we've done anything wrong. Paul's point is a day is coming when God's searching thorough judgment will fall on everyone. So you want to play the game of it's only illegal if you get caught? One day we will all be caught. We will all be seen to be no different to everyone else. A third aspect of God's judgment follows, this one being that he judges on what we do, not what we say. Verse 6 says it straight out. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now he points this out because it's again a measure of our self-delusion that often we can think that as long as I think something is important, that's almost as good as virtually doing it. You know, that as long as I think something's important, that somehow excuses me if I don't do it. So, for example, as long as I think it's important to tell people about Jesus, it somehow doesn't matter as much that I never actually talk to people about Jesus. Or I think prayer is important, so somehow that excuses me from actually not praying very much. And I think gossip is wrong. And selfishness is bad. And people shouldn't be so materialistic. Because I think all those things are wrong, that somehow excuses me a little from the times when I'm actually guilty of those things. At least I think they're wrong. How many times have you nodded in agreement at all the right places in a Bible talk and then gone away and not actually done anything about it? God's judgment does not put up with that sort of nonsense. God will give to each person according to what he has done, not according to what we'll say we'll do, not according to what we think, what we actually do. Oh, and by the way, he's not going to play favourites as he does it. Verse 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. Now, we don't tend to like favouritism very much, do we? You know, the coach who always gives his kid the best and fairest award, uh, the teacher whose child always seems to top the class. Uh, the boss at work who promotes their friends, we tend to react against favouritism, unless, of course, we're the ones actually getting the favouritism. Uh, during the week, you might have heard on the news, uh, the actress Reese Witherspoon was arrested in jail for disorderly contact conduct. Evidently during the arrest, the arrest, she yelled at the officer, ''Don't you know my name?'' In other words, ''Don't you know who I am? ''Don't you realise I'm famous? ''Don't you realise I, I should get preferential treatment?'' The officer didn't know her name and she didn't get preferential treatment. (laughs) God knows your name. Don't expect preferential treatment. When it comes to judging you, it will not matter that you have friends who are missionaries. When it comes to judging you, it will not cut anything with God if you're part of a good church. Won't matter if your parents are full on Christians. Won't matter if one of your kids are in ministry or something. God's searching, true, inescapable judgment will cut through all of that with complete impartiality. And He will judge you on what you do. And what is it that Paul says in verse 9? First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Everyone. Hang on, what was that? First for the Jew? God's judgment is not going to show favoritism, Jews included. Well, back when Paul wrote that, that's unexpected. Because you see, the Jews, remember, they were God's people in the Old Testament, remember. They'd actually be expecting a level of favoritism at this point. Indeed... uh, up until now, the Jews could well have been reading all this stuff in Romans about God revealing his wrath against all the wickedness of people and God's judgment, even condemning those who pass judgment on them. And the Jews would probably have been cheering Paul on in Romans, thinking that he's been referring to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews who deny God. so They've probably been sort of reading this and saying, Go for it, Paul. Preach it to a brother. A dirty, rotten, low-life Gentiles. They are so sinful. And suddenly... Hang on, Paul specifically drops the Jews by name into the whole discussion? Whoa, does that mean that back in verse 1, that reference to those who pass judgment on others, Paul's actually been thinking of the Jews in there as well as the Gentiles all along? This is so not what the Jews would have been expecting. Paul realises it's not what they would have been expecting, which is why at verse 12... All the way through now to chapter 3, verse 8, he starts to apply all this stuff about God's judgment. He applies it specifically to Israel. That's why you'll notice from verse 12 on, there's suddenly all this mention about the law, the Old Testament law that they were very proud of. And he starts talking about circumcision, which was the physical sign of someone being a Jew. And look, there's a few ins and outs to this section, but the bottom line is that Paul wants the Jews to see that even they cannot escape the wrath of a God whose judgments are true and impartial. So, for example, let me just read you a little bit of it. Chapter 2, verse 17. Pick it up here. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because... You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now you see his logic there? The Jews thought that they were okay simply because they were Jews, that that being Jew was a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card Paul is saying that's not right. You pride yourself in having the Old Testament law. You know the law. You've actually got to obey it, though. You who brag about the law, verse 23, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? See, even in our society, even in our society, think about lawyers, okay? Why is it that whenever you have those polls that are taken about which professions are the most trustworthy... Why is it that lawyers always come so far down the list? Last year, lawyers came in way out of the top 20. Uh, They came in around about the same place as sex workers and telemarketers as a trustworthy profession. Why is that? It's a bit weird because lawyers know the law better than any of us. It's because we understand the difference between someone knowing the law... And obeying the law. God understands the difference too. Because remember what we've discovered? God's judgment is based on what we do. God's judgment is based on the truth. And therefore you might be a Jew with the law of God, but if you don't actually do the law, you may as well not be a Jew at all. All of which is leading to a massive conclusion that is going to include us all. See, come on to me now to chapter 3, verse 9. And look, I know I've skipped over a big section of text. You might like to read through it yourself. But for the sake of time, I'd like us to see where all of this is heading. Why is it that Paul has talked all about degenerate evildoers last week? Why is it that he's turned the spotlight onto moralistic do-gooders who judge others this week? And why is it that he's then singled out the Jews to make sure that they know that they're included in all of this? What's the conclusion that it's leading to? Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, did you notice the all-encompassing nature of those statements? Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I don't think you can fit any more no-ones or alls into those sentences. It's pushing the point that we are all, without exception, sinful. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're black. Doesn't matter if you're white. Doesn't matter if you're educated. Doesn't matter if you're uneducated. Doesn't matter if you're employed. Doesn't matter if you're unemployed. Doesn't matter if you're a Presby. Doesn't matter if you're a Baptist. Doesn't matter if you're a do-gooder. Doesn't matter if you're a degenerate. Doesn't matter if you're in prison or doesn't matter if you've never had a parking ticket. We are all under sin. Mind you, it's not a very popular idea in today's society uh, the spirit of this age, which takes its lead from um, humanism, the spirit of our age is that mankind is basically good. Human nature is at its heart essentially good and left to our own devices more often than not we'll do the right thing, which is a flattering thought. So lots of us like that idea. We're basically good, it's just the system that's the problem. So if we get our politics right, if we get our education right, or if we get our social welfare system right, if we can get science and technology just right, everything will be fine. Academics with our children say, if you just let kids do what they, comes natural to them, it'll all be fine. Trouble is history proves that's crazy. Because no matter what age you look at, no matter what country of the world you pick, no matter what culture you focus on, no matter what political system is in place, there is always trouble. There is always murder. There is always deceit. There is always conflict. There is always immorality. And God says that it's because people, us, we're just basically bad. And no matter what political, socio-economic system you happen to dream up, we'll mess it up. It's just that we suffer from illusory superiority and we don't think it's us. It's the system. Or at least it's everyone else in the system other than us. No. It's you. The problem is you. And me. It's every single one of us. And Paul has gone to great lengths to spill this out. Because there's a very important implication that flows out of realising that every man, woman and child is sinful. It is the implication every man, woman and child therefore needs to hear the gospel regarding Jesus Christ. Because remember two weeks weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said back there that the gospel, the news regarding Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, both the Jew and the Gentile. And having said that, that that the gospel is the power of God to save people, having said that, Paul has yet to fully explain just how that works. What is this gospel and how does it save us? He simply said that by, leaving it, but that by believing it, we will be saved. But what he's done now is that so as to convict us, convince us of our need to be saved, what Paul has done is he's now taken us on a 63-verse journey in which he has systematically shown that no matter who you are, whether you're a degenerate Gentile or a do uh, a Gentile or even a God-fearing Jew, Paul has systematically gone through it all to show us the importance of us needing to be saved so that we might understand the importance of hearing and believing the gospel. You see, having done that, next week Paul will finally explain just what that gospel is and how it is we are saved by believing it. In the space of six magnificent verses, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, next week Paul will explain not just that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, next week he will explain how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So friends, let me offer you something very practical to do this week. A very simple task. Invite someone here next Sunday. Because next Sunday we're going to look at a passage in which Paul will very concisely explain how it is that Jesus helps us out of the mess that our sin has created having painted that bleak picture that there is no one righteous not even one next week we're going to hear the good news of how we can be saved from that predicament and I'm going to do my best to explain it as as clearly as I can from what the passage is saying and so next Sunday be a good one to bring a friend to I know that some of us won't be able to do that because we're going to be away at the first uh, course of your life intensive but for the rest of us why don't you look ahead, chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, and, and see if you can think of someone who you can invite who needs to hear that these verses explained. And it actually shouldn't be too hard to think of someone. Because for 63 verses, Paul's been telling us everyone needs to hear it. I'll pray. Father, please, by your word and by your spirit, uh, convict us that we are not righteous so that we might then be able to delight in your righteousness and your goodness and your mercy in saving us through the gospel regarding Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that into this mess of a world you were willing for your son to come and die in our place so that we might be saved. And Father, even this week we ask for an opportunity to have a conversation with someone in our lives about this. Extend an invitation. Give us opportunity to share this news. Amen.